Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Three Creeks. My name is Joel Trainer, and I get to be the pastor here. And welcome. If uh, I think Morgan already said it earlier, but if you're here for the first time, we just want to say to you, welcome. That we are so glad that you're here. That you've joined us for Palm Sunday, two thousand years ago, in Jerusalem. There was this. Uh, maybe the best way to describe it is this hopeful anticipation. Something special was about to happen. They were going to be witnesses of something that was going to change their lives. And and I know sometimes it can be easy to just kind of come into church just another Sunday and go, let's sing it. Let's listen to Joel for a minute. Let's sing the last song and let's get out of here. But I'm hopeful, perhaps, that today would be a day that, that, uh, that you might even be surprised at what God might want to do. See, Palm Sunday and the story that I'm going to tell today is a familiar one if you're a churchgoer like I've been for most of my life. And it's easy to come into Palm Sunday and say, yeah, donkey, palm branches, Hosanna, etc. What else is new? I've heard this one before. And perhaps the familiarity of the story is actually maybe what would prevent us from hearing everything that God might want to do through this story this time around. Maybe because we've heard it before, we go, yeah, I've heard that. Joel better come up with something unique that I've never heard before about this story to really get my attention. And I hope maybe that in the next 25 or 30 minutes that as I tell this story of, the Palms, of, of Palm Sunday, of the first one, that it might be for you almost like hearing it for the first time and just being blown away at the significance of what happened five days before Jesus went to the cross, seven days before he resurrected again, the first day of Holy Week, which is a, it's a significant week on the calendar for the life of a Christian. It's, it's where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and everything that Jesus has been working towards in his whole life is, is reaching its peak. This is the pinnacle. And, and he ascends, he goes up to Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. And, and so what I want to do today, I, I took the... Uh, this week, and I just slowly, intentionally read through all four accounts of the triumphal entry, what happened on Palm Sunday. There's one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and each author from a different perspective tells this same story. And so I just went through each one of them slowly and intentionally, trying to pick out different details that caught my attention. I listened to a couple other pastors preach about Palm Sunday. I read another book about Palm Sunday, the, the triumphal entry, and I've, I've just kind of grabbed it all. And what I want to try to do is for a few minutes, take us back at a time machine and try to help us imagine what it would have been like to be there and to see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why was he even on a donkey? Why are they even holding branches? I want to tell you those things. I want to try to paint a picture of what it was like to be there in Jerusalem. And at the end, I just simply want to ask you one question. I want to ask you one question, and I want you to feel the freedom when I ask it to wrestle with it a little bit. It's not an easy question. It certainly isn't one that can be answered real quickly. It might take you all week, and it might be 
what God wants you to think about this week as we lead up towards Easter next week. So, if you would, let's travel back into time and imagine being there with Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth as he rode into the capital city riding on a donkey. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Those are the four places. If you didn't catch that, you can Google it. Just Google triumphal entry. You'll find them all. They're all in the Bible. And this is what happened. You see, for, for, for three years leading up to this moment, Jesus is operating in something that we call a, a veiled disclosure. In other words, he had disclosed to just a couple people who he was, what he intended to do, but it was veiled to a certain extent. And here's why. Or, or maybe, maybe you've even read a story about Jesus where he healed somebody, cast a demon out of somebody, perform some kind of miracle, and then right at the end of it, he'll say to the person that he healed, he'll say, you can go, but don't tell anybody about this. Because I'm disclosing to you who I am, but I want to kind of veil it to some degree because Jesus knew that as soon as word got out, his real intentions, who he really was, he knew that it was going to be quick He knew that they were going to be out to kill him immediately. And so it's not as if Jesus was scared for three years, but he knew that the time had not come. It wasn't right yet. He still had more to do. So he operates for three years under this veiled disclosure, but the time has come for him to reveal to everybody in Jerusalem at the Passover who he is. Jesus was traveling with his 12 disciples. He was making his way all around the nation of Israel, which is about the size of New Jersey, not that big just making his way around, going up into the northern area where he was born, coming down to the southern area, interacting with Samaritan women on the way. Some of you remember that story from a few months ago. They're going around and finally they're making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover because everybody goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. Not literally everybody, but it feels like Jerusalem has a magnetic pull. It's like Lowe's and Home Depot for middle-aged men this week. You know what I'm saying? It just kind of draws you in. You start smelling the mulch and you're like, I need some of that. The dusty roads that connect each village to Jerusalem are packed with pilgrims. They're traveling to Jerusalem. People walk miles from different directions. Smoke billows up from homes in Jerusalem because the mothers are preparing feasts for their family and friends that are traveling from a long way to get to Jerusalem. And soon... All these travelers will stand on top of the Mount of Olives and they'll look over the holy city. And as they look over it, as they're entering into the city, their eyes surely will be caught by the temple. In all of its white and golden splendor, their eyes will catch, it it will grab their attention and they will know in that moment, we are at the center of Jewish life. Jesus and his 12 disciples don't make it that far on the Saturday before Palm Sunday. They stop at a place called Bethany, which is about two miles out of town. Jesus has a connection there. He's got a place to stay. His friend, one of his best friends named Lazarus lives in Bethany. It's about a 40-minute walk from Bethany into Jerusalem. And Jesus, this is where they're going to set up home base. Jesus's popularity explodes because of Lazarus. Some of you might know this story, but Lazarus, Jesus's friend, the father of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Lazarus died. 
by all accounts, he was dead. And Jesus, on a deep and personal and human level, was grieved that he lost a friend. And Jesus came into town, Jesus with the, with the plan to raise Lazarus from the dead. And when he went close to where Lazarus was buried, the daughter said, no, 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 don't open that. Literally, the King James Version of the Bible says, Lazarus, that can't, I'm having a hard time today. Nazareth, Lazarus, okay. Lazarus, <laughs> Lazarus, the King James says that he stinketh. His body, four days, wrapped up in a tomb, buried dead. He was dead, dead. And Jesus came in, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And all these people have seen him. And so as you can imagine, there's, there's kind of a, a, a bubbling mania around this area. They're going, he raised Lazarus? From the dead? We were at his funeral. And now he's alive? And so you can imagine hearing that story and there beginning to be this anticipation of, oh, this guy, he, he's not like the other people that have just gathered followers. This guy, he is different. He raised him from the dead. And that is where Jesus sets up camp for the, week, for the whole, holy week. They go in and out of Bethany into Jerusalem that whole week. A couple things happen while they're walking towards Bethany that should be noted. The first is that Jesus told his 12 disciples that when they got to Jerusalem, that he was going to die. He literally says to them that I will be betrayed, turned over, mocked, flogged, and crucified. But on the third day, Jesus says, I will rise again. And these words, for some reason, don't disturb the disciples. They, it's almost as if Jesus didn't say it at all. And perhaps it's because for the last three years, Jesus has been telling lots of stories. He's been telling lots of parables. Sometimes he goes on to explain them. Sometimes he doesn't. And perhaps the disciples thought, well, this is just another one of Jesus' stories. And when he wants to explain what he actually means, he'll let us know. Another thing happens. On the way to Bethany, the disciples begin jockeying for position. James and John, two of the disciples, they actually go up and they, they ask Jesus through their mom, by the way, hey, can James and John be kind of like the principal assistants in the new regime that you're going to establish in Jerusalem? Jesus, when you're the king, can my son sit at the right and the left? And the other disciples, the Bible says, are furious because they too have left their jobs and their homes and in some cases their families to follow Jesus. And Jesus can sense that all the disciples are mad at each other. Amazing. Christians mad at each other. It's, it's like there's a sign of things to come in some ways. But Jesus gathers them in. He says, guys, sit down. Come here. And he explains that whoever wants to be great among the disciples must first be a servant. And then Jesus says this. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Second time, he predicts his death, and the disciples, over their heads. Jesus will explain it later if he really means it. It's as if they, they don't, they're not used to taking notes. They're, they're, they're just kind of in the dark. They don't get it. Then the third thing happens. 
right before Bethany, they passed through another city called Jericho. And this is significant. You may have heard this story before, but maybe this one part hasn't jumped out at you. As they're walking through Jericho, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, there are thousands of people that are following him because they're curious, what's he going to do next? And they're walking through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. A blind man named Bartimaeus calls out and says, Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. This is a really important moment in this story. Because if Jesus, like, you don't, you don't call someone the son of David unless they really are the Christ. If they really are the Messiah, if they really are the king that everybody's been waiting for. You don't call someone son of David unless you believe that they're that person. And if someone calls you the son of David and you're not that person, you would immediately rebuke them and say, that's not who I am. But Jesus doesn't rebuke Bartimaeus. He goes over to Bartimaeus. He responds to who he really is, what Bartimaeus is calling him, the son of David. And he heals Bartimaeus, and his disciples are pumped. They're pumped. At first, they might have thought, Jesus, why are you bothering with this guy? But now that they realize Bartimaeus just called Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, and Jesus didn't turn him away. In fact, he went to the person that called out who he was. And so there begins to be this mumbling among the crowd. Jesus really is the king. This is really happening. We've been waiting for centuries for this. There's this hopeful anticipation. Something special is going to happen. And this crowd is going to get to witness it. They arrive at Lazarus's house. And that night, a dinner is served in Jesus' honor at the house of Lazarus. Maybe you've heard of, you know, we've obviously talked about Palm Sunday and how Holy Week starts on this day. Thursday is going to be called Maundy Thursday. And then we'll have Good Friday. And then we'll have Silent Saturday. Then we'll have Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. But in some ways, in my opinion, Holy Week kind of starts maybe one day earlier on Lazarus Saturday where Jesus reclines at the table, where Lazarus is there eating with him. Martha, one of Lazarus' daughters, served the meal. And Mary, this is where she grabs a pint of expensive perfume worth thousands and thousands of dollars and pours it on Jesus' feet and washes it with her hair. And in the same way that I'm sure that perfume permeated through the house, maybe even leaked out the door or the windows, the news that Jesus is in Bethany has also leaked out. The crowd has begun to even gather around the exterior of the house. What is Jesus going to do next? At this point, the Pharisees, the religious people at the time, they have to stop this as soon as possible. They just got to figure out how. And they're going to try, they're going to spend all week coming up with accusations as to why they can kill Jesus. The next morning, the crowd begins to gather again, and Jesus sends two of his disciples into a village ahead, and he says, you're going to find a colt there. This colt is going to be unridden, unbroken, and you're going to, it's going to be tied up, and I just want you to just go ahead and just take it. And if anybody asks why you're taking the colt, just tell the owner that the Lord needs it. And it, it, 
I just want to take this moment to make sure that we're on the same page. This verse does not justify property theft. Because when Jesus said, the Lord needs it, what he's doing is he's invoking a law at the time, one that you might know as eminent domain. The law at the time stated that a king can have or borrow any animal at any point that he wants. And so when he says the Lord needs it, that word kyrios, it can be translated as sir or master or supreme prince or chief or emperor. So I tend to think that Jesus with this statement is not doing anything illegal, but rather he's employing his right by law as the king to borrow whatever animal he wants. So when the owner hears the Lord needs it, he joyfully gives it up. In fact, it would be his honor to give up this colt if there's a Lord, if there's a king who needs it. And just as Jesus said it would happen, it happens. Just as Zechariah wrote hundreds of years before, it happens. They find the colt. The owner says, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord needs it. And they take it back and they bring the unbroken colt to Jesus. Couple questions. Why did the colt need to be unbroken? Because nobody ever, uh, excuse me, a king's horse or a king's donkey, no one else is allowed to ride on it. And so in that, Jesus is announcing himself as a king. And why did that have to be a donkey? Why wasn't it a Clydesdale, a strong stallion? Why didn't Jesus come galloping in, announcing his arrival in that way? Because kings that want to wage war ride on horses, but kings that ride on donkeys come in peace. And Jesus is simultaneously declaring himself as the king that they've been waiting for, but also the prince of peace in one moment. One of the disciples takes off his coat. He puts it on the colt's back as a makeshift saddle. Others begin putting their coats on the ground, forming a sort of red carpet for Jesus and the colt to walk on. Why do you think they did that? This moment where they take off their coats and they put it on the ground, it, it's not the first time they've done this for a king. If you rewind a couple hundred years if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and I said to you, who was the worst king in the history of Israel? I think one name stands out the most. It would be King Ahab. In every way, an evil king. And there's a moment when God sees this and wants to remove Ahab from his kingship and wants to install a new king, a better king. And there's a, a young man named Jehu who is anointed as the next king. And what happens in 2 Kings 9.13, as soon as Jehu is as anointed as the king, they quickly took their coats and spread them out before him. And they blew a trumpet and they said, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. I, Ahab is out of here. Jehu is, come, is going to come and reestablish our peaceful kingdom. And in the same way, the people go, oh, it's like Jehu again. It's like the story my grandparents told me. And they throw the coats out and they say, he's the king. He's going to save us. And there's, there's hundreds of coats. They, the people run ahead and they grab onto these palm branches. 
and they cut them off the tree and they cut off olive tree branches. This is a sign of triumph or victory. And they begin, they begin saying things like Hosanna, which means save us. Keep in mind, there are thousands of people. They begin saying things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He receives it because it's true. People are coming from everywhere. They're leaving their job sites. They're abandoning meals that are being cooked. Kids are ducking their chores conveniently. People are losing their parents, losing their kids, losing their friends in the chaos. The mania surrounding Jesus is, is incredible. It's phenomenal. Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're essentially saying all together, Jesus is here. Jesus can save us. Jesus can do it. All the prophecies are fulfilled. He's the one we're waiting for. The time has finally come. And the donkey, I imagine the donkey that, is, that Jesus is riding stops at the top of the Mount of Olives overlooking the holy city of Jerusalem. And, and as Jesus looks down the hill, there's tents where people are, people are camping just to be close to Jerusalem. Smoke is billowing up. He can smell the lamb that's being cooked. I imagine he even looks down through the Kidron Valley and he wants to, he, he, he's going, I've never ridden this donkey before. I hope that this donkey doesn't slip because it's not an easy route to ride. Jesus' whole life and ministry have pointed to this week and it has begun. And what do you think Jesus does in that moment when he looks over the city? Luke 19 tells us that Jesus begins to weep. He begins to cry. And perhaps it's the thought of spending his last week with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends. Maybe he foresees the eventual destruction of this city that he's looking at. Or perhaps, and most likely, it's because all of this support is going to be so short-lived. Because so much is about to change. You see, all these people, they want Jesus to raise up an earthly army and train the troops and give a speech and free them from the oppression of Rome. Because that's what all the kings in the good old days did. That's what all the kings did in the, in the last thousand, two thousand years the king would come in and rally the troops and beat the Egyptians or beat the Babylonians or beat the Philistines or beat the Persians. So this is their anticipation that Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, going to get everybody on board, and then they're going to overthrow Rome. Freedom from the oppression of Rome. And that is not what Jesus is going to do. Jesus, in their minds, is really going to disappoint them. And as it turns out, the same crowd, many of the same people, the ones that love Jesus so much, who are saying Hosanna, who are taking off their coats, who are waving the branches, five days later are the same ones shouting, crucify him. Same week, many of them, the same crowd. And so I call these people the fickle crowd because how quickly they switch their allegiance. A couple days Jesus doesn't do everything you want him to do just when you want him to do it and you turn on him. It's as if they thought, oh, 
we miss it again. He's not the guy we thought he was going to be. You see, Jesus, or excuse me, they wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans. But Jesus came to save them from their sins. And they wanted Jesus to come and destroy their physical enemies. And Jesus came to destroy their spiritual ones. They wanted Jesus to come in and give them freedom and a good life. And Jesus came to give them freedom and eternal life. And he just didn't meet their expectations in the same way. And because that he doesn't give them exactly what they want, they turn on him. You see, these Israelite pilgrims were not worshiping Jesus for who he was. They were chasing a change in circumstances. And when Jesus didn't do just that, they said, forget it. Let's find somebody else who can save us from Rome. So considering this, this fickle crowd, I want to just ask you a question. If the only thing Jesus ever does for you is forgive your sins, is that enough? If the only thing Jesus ever does for you again is forgive your sins, is that enough? If God never heals anyone that you pray for, if he never helps you get a better job, if he never provides you with a spouse or a family, if God never answers your prayers for a house, if God doesn't miraculously come in and do something amazing in your life, if he never answers a prayer request for the rest of your life, is he still enough? Do you still want to follow him with your whole heart are you all in if the only thing Jesus ever does for you is forgive your sins? Is that enough? I was talking to my daughter Cooper the other day. She's, uh, she's six years old. She's going to turn seven this summer. Sometimes she blows me away with her, with her spiritually correct answers. And I've told those stories before. But this one she got wrong. And I, and I just want to share it with you. I said, Coops, I said, why do you think we need Jesus? And she said, hesitantly, questioning even her own answer, she said, so we can have a good life? I said, no. No, 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 no. I didn't say it like that, but I said, no, Coops. I said, we need Jesus to forgive us for our sins. That's why we need Jesus. And if he does that, that's enough. I talk to people sometimes who, maybe they've come back to church. A lot of people come back to church in their 30s because they've got a family and church is good, right? So we need to get our kids in church. They can learn good morals. And then maybe when they get a little bit older, we'll put them in the youth group because that'll keep them out of trouble. And then they'll get good grades, which will maybe help them get into a good college. And then that will lead them to have a good life. And I hear that and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Is that what you think we're doing? Is that why you think we're here? 
That is not why we're here. We, we don't have Three Creeks kids to teach your kids to share or be nice. We have Three Creeks kids and we have this service because every soul needs saved and every sin needs forgiven. And God in his great mercy and love sent Jesus Christ. And so in Three Creeks kids and in here, I'm desperate to tell you not about the good life, but about eternal life that can only be found in Jesus. And this is not to say that being a Christian isn't a good life. I actually happen to think it's the best life. It's the best life. Because my sins are forgiven, I've got this hope and this peace and this joy that is not attached to my circumstances, but rather it's attached to the grace of God. So there's a hope and a peace and a joy that runs so deep for a forgiven man or a forgiven woman, but it's only and directly tied to the fact that our sins are forgiven through Jesus. I I witness people, sometimes they grew up in church, They believed in God. It was a thing for them growing up. And then they get to the point where they just begin to start doubting or reconsidering or deconstructing or just having a lot of questions. And so maybe the best way to put it is that they're kind of up in the air. They don't know where they're going to land on this anymore. They've had enough conversations between when they were in school or with their parents and where they are now that they've begun to question some things. And it's it's 50-50. And it's because so much of that is happening is because some of us have been raised to believe that we've been raised to follow Jesus because Jesus can work things out for us. Jesus can answer our prayers. Jesus can heal people when they're sick. He can help us pass tests. He can help us make teams. Jesus can do it all. Jesus can give us a good life. And friends, he can do all that and he often does do all that, but If your faith rides on that, that is a Jesus plus perks Christianity. It is so different than the gospel. So so we can't have this faith where where it's like a, what have you done for me lately type of faith. Where it goes up and down based on how the last month went. You know, you get what I'm saying? Like, we need to have this faith that rides not on what God has done for us lately, but what God has actually done for us in sending Jesus Christ to die and rise again so that our sins can be forgiven. For these people that are in this up-in-the-air faith spot, I see them there for two reasons. The first is that Jesus doesn't answer all their prayers just like they wanted him to. And so they begin to question, does Jesus care about me? Is he even real? Maybe he's not real. But the far more common in my experience reason why people are drifting away or stiff-arming faith in Jesus is people convince themselves that they don't need God's help to get what they want anymore. Because what they do is they go and they look and they see their, their faithless, churchless, godless friends go to the hospital and get better or get a good realtor and find the house or they get happily married or they have kids or they get a raise, they get a better job, they, tra- they travel. And then subconsciously, these people go, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't need God because it seems like my friends that don't have God, they actually have the good life. So what do I need God for? That's really the question that they're asking. What do I need God for? And the answer is simply this we still need him to forgive us for our sins. 
we still need to forgive us for our sins. What I'm trying to help all of us see today is that a good doctor can prescribe medicine that can make you feel better. And a good work ethic can get you that raise or that promotion. And a well-connected realtor can help you find that house. And persistent chivalry can get you that wife. You give it everything you got, you'll find one. If you are looking for what you would describe as a good life, you can find it other places. But you can't find eternal life anywhere else other than in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So, so I'm having this personal reckoning even this week as I'm writing this and studying this and going like, wait a minute, how much of my faith is hanging on what God has done for me lately? Prayers that he's answered for me lately. And really, I, I just want to have this robust faith in Christ that if he doesn't do anything for me again, I'm still good to go because my sins have been forgiven. I've been welcomed and adopted into the family of God. It doesn't get any better than that. It's the forgiveness of our sins that makes Jesus worth following. And so I should ask the question again, if the only thing Jesus ever does for you is forgive your sins, is that enough? What I'm not saying, and I got to make sure I, I make myself pretty clear here, I am not saying that Jesus isn't interested in those other details of your life because I believe that he is. I believe that he is. I believe that a life with Jesus invites miracles into your life where Jesus can heal you and he can provide for you and he can bless you and he can do miracles. I'm just, I'm just encouraging you not to let your faith hinge on that. God loves it when we ask. But when his disciples came to him, there's a, there's a story in, in Luke, uh, I don't know what chapter it is, Luke, where Jesus sends out the disciples and they come back and they give these reports about what God had done through them. And they're going, they're telling all these stories about these miracles that have happened through the power of God. And Jesus actually tells the disciples, he goes, hey, listen, that's great. I'm glad that you witnessed miracles and I'm glad that you had those experiences, but that's not why we rejoice. Disciples, that is not why we rejoice. We only rejoice because our names are written down because our sins have been forgiven, because our souls have been saved. And so all of this other stuff, it, it's, it is true and they are perks and they do come with following God, but don't put your faith on those things. Put your faith in Jesus on the cross, on the resurrection, and on the forgiveness of your sins. If we're following Jesus for the perks, then we're really no different than that fickle crowd on Palm Sunday where we just kind of, we've missed the point of his arrival. And when Jesus himself was asked, why did you do this? Why have you come? What is the point of your arrival? Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost, period. That's the mission. In love, I've come to seek and save the lost. And so while these Israelite Jewish pilgrims were chasing a change in circumstances. Jesus really, if they'd have just waited them out, if they'd have just let the story play out, man, they would have been overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus's plans were so much bigger than what they had in mind. 
we're going we're gonna to sing a song here as we close today's service. And uh, I just, I want this song. I, I'm just, I'm really hoping that this, these seven minutes would kind of set your heart up to have your own personal Holy Week. Where all, all week you would just have this Easter's coming thought. Where you would almost show up here on Saturday because you miss the days. You know what I'm saying? You get confused. You're just so excited to be here and, and you show up and there's nobody here. Like be that excited. I, I want this song, like these seven minutes to set you up for your own personal Holy Week. There are times, listen, there are times when we have this kind of closing song and it's a time for us to go to God and to petition and to ask. He loves it when we do. And to say, hey, this is going on in my life and I need help here and I need your provision here and I need your, you to bless me here. I need a miracle in my life. There are times and it's appropriate for the Christian to go to God in those ways. But there are other times and I'm hoping maybe that this closing song would be this time where rather than going to God and say like, I need this or I want this or I need you to do this, where we literally sing a song with the posture of I have all that I need. I, I really don't need anything else. My sins have been forgiven. And so for that reason, I'm good. I'm good. You've, you've already done it. You've already won. And so, you know, there's a couple things on my mind. I've got a couple things that I do need your help with. But in the grand scheme of things, if I zoom out... I've got all that I need. I'm good. My hope is secure. My destination is locked in. And so, friends, let's not be like that fickle crowd that their faith and their hope hinged on Jesus doing exactly what they wanted him to do. But rather, let's be robust Christians that say, no matter how it goes, our sins are forgiven. And so we have all that we need. Would you guys stand? And I'm just going to pray a prayer for us before we sing this song. Father, we just ask that you would move in our hearts over the next seven minutes and prepare us, spring us towards a personal Holy Week where we think about you more often than we usually do. When we're grateful more often than we usually are. When we remember the cross and the resurrection, when it, where it just comes to mind every day. And Father, when it does come to mind, I, I, I pray, Father, that as a church, that we could put our, our list aside for a moment and just sit in the fact that you already did all of that. Father, we have the, the benefit of being on the other side of Easter weekend, this, this fickle crowd that I'm kind of dogging on. They didn't even know what you were doing. But we do know what you were doing and we do know what you did. And so for that reason, God, we just, we drive a stake in the ground today and we say, we are grateful for what you've done.
We're grateful that you came to Jerusalem. We're grateful that you rode in on a donkey. We're grateful for what you did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. We're grateful that so much of it is recorded in the Bible. We can know this story. And we're grateful for the cross and we're grateful for the resurrection. And because of those things, we have all that we need. And if you don't do anything else for us ever again, if you don't answer any more of our prayers, if that's the only thing that you do for us, God, it is enough because it is truly all that we need. And so we sing this song in adoration and praise for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.